continue to pray for uh, the youth as they get ready to come back. They should be heading back fairly shortly. Uh, they usually get kicked out of their camps by, by 11, I think, if I remember from back in my time as a youth pastor. So pray for Pastor Matt and all the leaders for Beth and for Alyssa, for Matt, not Pastor Matt, the other Matt, and also Josh as well. What a great time it is to be able to be with the youth. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 17. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It is a unique insight, a different insight into how God speaks to themselves. As each person of the Trinity talks, as Jesus talks to God the Father. Pastor Matt will be finishing this chapter off next week, but this is that unique interaction, this unique window of the interaction of the triune God as God the Son talks with God the Father, and Jesus is facing a crisis in all of this situation. His heart is troubled, if you remember, as he opens up this time of prayer. So let me ask you this question. When, when do you, when crisis is happening, what is your first response? Now, be honest. Because I, I could ask you to your face and you'll probably say, oh, I pray for sure. You know, you can repent of those things uh, for lying to your pastor. But what is the first thing that you do? When crisis happens, what is the first thing to do? The first thought that comes into your brain as something troubling comes towards you, what is your first reaction? Panic. Panic, yeah. It's mine. Maybe our first response is to pick up the phone, and maybe it is to call someone, which is fine. But then, what's the response of that person on the other end? In chapter 17, we see how Jesus responds to a time of trouble. You've got to remember the context of what is happening. Jesus has just talked with his disciples over this final discourse, as it's called. They had supper. They're leaving. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is there that Judas will bring the soldiers, and they will arrest Jesus. It is after that moment that you'll have a, uh, essentially a, a kangaroo court where he will eventually be led to the cross to die, not for his sins, because he's sinless, but for mine and for yours. In chapter 17, we see how Jesus responds to a time of trouble. I think it's funny, as I was prepping this, this world is full of trouble. And I think it's a very appropriate time to be this. I have a friend of mine who's preaching right now on loving your enemies. So in a moment of trouble, we see Jesus' response to it, and we see this amazing insight in how the triune God interacts. Jesus has just finished his final instructions to his disciples, ending with a reminder that they will experience trouble. They will experience tribulation. On a side note, if you become a Christian, expect tribulation. But now Jesus has his own tribulation to face, the hour of the cross. In this crisis, Jesus shows his attitude of his heart by lifting up his eyes to heaven. This is the high priestly prayer. And Jesus first prays that God's people would know 
God. So if you have your Bibles with you, John 17, 1 to 8, says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to continue to worship you, Calm our hearts. Open up our ears so that we may hear what your word has to say. Help us as to have focus with all that is happening in our world around us. Give us focus and remind us once again of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, we pray for the church here in London that we'd be a shining light for you in the midst of all of this unknown. And specifically, we think of Stony Creek Baptist Church and Pastor Mark, that you would bless them, that you would encourage them, that you would give wisdom to the elders and the pastors of that church as they seek to faithfully shepherd the flock that you've given them, entrusted to them. That, they, that you would bless them as they too seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we come and we worship you through the opening of your word, we pray that you are indeed glorified. And God, I can't do this on my own. So Lord, will you not glorify your name? Will you not make this turn out well? So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. God, I just want you to use this sermon to bring glory to your name above all things. Bring joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. Verses 1 to 5, we see Jesus wants his people to know God. In verse 1, we see that the hour has come. The hour has come at this moment. Up until this moment, we have been told over and over and over again that the time has not come yet. And every time people tried to arrest Jesus or stone him or something, he gets away. And the simple thing is, why does he keep getting away? It's because his time had not come yet. But now his time had come. Now as they walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, the moment when Judas will come with the soldiers to betray the word of God is coming. And this is an amazing thing because we see God's sovereign decree of the sacrifice of the death of Christ and the final accomplishment of his atonement. It has come. The time has come. The time that was prophesied when Adam fell, when Adam sins. So I want you to do well upon this. This was the moment 
that the people of God have been waiting for ever since Adam sinned, ever since when God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head by Jesus dying for his people as a substitute, as a redeemer. That time has come. The hour has come. The long-awaited Messiah is now here. This moment has been foreknown and decreed by God that Jesus' enemies couldn't hurt him. Now is the time in the sacrifice that was ready. And as I look at this, I am reminded that not even Jesus' death was outside of what God had decreed. So let me rest in God as life may feel like it's out of control. Because God is always in control. They couldn't kill his son until he said it was time. So even in that one four words, I'm reminded of where I can rest my head. So as Jesus faces the most severe stress of his life, what does he do? How does he respond to the situation? He responds by praying to his father. Remember from last week, prayer is effective and purposeful when we pray in the line with the character and the mission of our Lord, and Jesus prays. How much more should we if the one whom through all things was created, the very word of God, takes time to pray to his Father during times of crisis, how much more should we? What is our first response to the circumstances in our, law, in our own life? As he continues to talk, as he, the hour has come, he prays that the glory that he would glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, as he says. And how does this work? Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him at the cross. So how does Jesus do that? The cross will show, it will put on display Jesus' ability to, 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 to satisfy the almighty wrath of the Father, whose worth and dignity and authority and justice are fully complete, comprehensive. So Jesus says, Father, do this so that the world will see that you are a just God, a holy God, a merciful God, a promise-keeping God. Jesus' death and resurrection will prove this and bring glory to God. This is justice owed for all the sins of all of God's people at all times in all places. He will glorify the Father. So how does Jesus satisfy the Father's justice against sin? The worth of Jesus must be equal to that of the Father himself in order for that to happen. These words prove that Jesus, the Son of God, is equal to the Father. What mere human could stand before God, right, and say, glorify me that I may glorify you? One that would be dead soon. Nothing brings so much glory to God than the complete redeeming work of Jesus, his death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And how does he do this? How does Jesus face this reality? Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross 
despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus glorifies his Father by satisfying perfectly his wrath that will be poured out on his people because of their sin. See, you and I, we often bend the rules. I don't care who you are. I'm including myself in this. We all bend the rules. As much as I seek to be consistent, I'm not. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. I was reminded of this this past week. I was at a funeral with some old friends of mine. An old friend of mine passed away this, this, this past week. So we went, my, my family and I, and I was surrounded by old friends. And you know what they used this opportunity to do was to mock me. I couldn't believe it. Don't worry, I put my punches in too. And one of them said, you like rules. Only your rules. And I was like, you're right. How often do we have a snack before dinner or before bed, but we tell our kids that they can't? There's a number of parents in here. How many times do you wait for your kids to go to bed so that you can get the snacks out because you told them all day that they couldn't do it? We all bend the rules. God shows at the cross that he won't bend the rules. He won't change the boundaries. He won't redefine the terms. God is so committed to his own holiness that he doesn't spare his own son, but freely gives him up for us. As Romans 8.32 says, when we look to the cross, it not only shows the incomparable worth of Jesus, it also demonstrates his incomparable love. Jesus doesn't satisfy the wrath, the Father's wrath because he himself has violated the Father's holiness, but because his people have. Jesus placed himself under God's displeasure against sin because he loves his people. Jesus does this not for himself, but for others. How can you wrap your mind around this? That what could possibly be our response to what Jesus does to redeem his people from their sins? When God, when Jesus prays, glorify me that I may glorify you, this is what he's talking about. In verse 2, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you. And Jesus will be able to give eternal life because the death will pay the penalty for sin, the penalty of death. Eternal life is found in knowing God. It's when we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again that we can have eternal life. There is no other way. If anybody ever says to you, there are many ways to God, they're lying through their teeth. Jesus is the only way. And why? Because he's the one that makes God known. Remember back in John 10, verses 27 to 29, because Jesus comes along and he says, to all whom you have given. Who does Jesus give eternal life to? To all whom you have given. Jesus said back then that his sheep hear his voice in John 10. He gives them eternal life. They will not perish, and no one can take them out, of, take them out from his hands. Because the Father who gave them to him is greater than all, and no one can take them out of the Father's hand. And here's the cool thing that, that I just can't get over, and I hope you never do either. Jesus counts us a love gift to him from the Father. 
John 17 says this in 6, how the Father has given his people to him. He treasures and he cherishes his people as the bridegroom treasures his bride, for that is what we are, as Ephesians 5 says. Everyone goes to Ephesians 5 and talks about marriage and whatnot, which is true. But one of the mind-blowing things to me is that as a husband, I am to love my wife as Christ has loved me. Christ loved me. And that is the filter by which I love everybody else. In a wedding, sometimes the officiant asks, who gives this bride to be this man's wife? It's a beautiful exchange. Some people don't like that, and that's, that's fine. But should anyone ask, who gives the sinner to the Savior? The Father responds enthusiastically, I do. Election is the most wonderful prearranged marriage imaginable. And if someone takes that doctrine of election away, I don't know what the joy is. Believer, those who are in Christ, Christians, don't listen to the lies that God doesn't love you or that he would stop loving you. He saved you from eternity past farewell, knowing every single sin that you will commit and have committed. And he sends his Holy Spirit that doesn't allow us to feel comfortable in our sin, but gives us a new heart that not only enables us to believe, but changes our desires so that they are more and more in line with him. This is what Jesus is praying. And this is eternal life, as he says in verse 3, as he begins to define it. It is knowing God, in verse 3, and knowing Jesus, the, only, the one whom God sent. Jesus went to the cross so that his people could know God. What Jesus wants for his people is better than what they themselves want for themselves. And I love this. Because we make things so complicated, but these words are so good. They are so merciful. The secret of having eternal life, of having life, of, of being justified and sanctified, of being made new and, and glorified when we go to heaven is simple. Having a saving knowledge of who God is. Of the one true God and of Jesus Christ who God the Father sent to save sinners. Our God declared that he rightly knows God and Jesus is the man who has eternal life. But what type of knowledge are you talking about? See, I grew up in the church. I've said this before. If there was an evening event, I was there. Youth group, prayer meeting. Then I got involved in the worship team. Like, I was there every day. I went to Awana. I went to a Christian school. I went to seminary. I think I have a lot of knowledge up here. Sometimes. Is that what it means, though? No. The knowledge that Jesus is talking about is the knowledge that dwells in the heart and influences the life. A true Christian is one who knows Jesus. And to know God on the one hand, his holiness, his purity, his hatred of sin, and to know Christ on the other hand, his redemption, how he is the mediator, he, how he loves the sinner, are two foundations to the saving faith. 
I love, J.C. Ryle puts it this way, right knowledge, after all, lies at the root of all vital Christianity. As light was the beginning of creation, we need to be renewed in knowledge. We must know that we believe what we believe, and we cannot properly worship an unknown God. Do we know God, and do we know Christ aright? Are the two great questions to be considered. God known out of Christ is a consuming fire and will fill us with fear only. Christ known without God will not be truly valued. We shall see no meaning in his cross and passion. To see clearly at the same time a holy, pure, sin-hating God and a loving, merciful, sin-atoning Christ, Christ is the very ABC of comfortable religion. In short, it is life eternal to know rightly God in Christ. To know God without Christ, says Newton, is not to know him savingly. As Jesus continues on in his prayer in verses 4 to 5, Jesus says in verse 4 that he has glorified the Father by completing the works that the Father gave him to do. And Jesus is completely faithful. He never failed but succeeded at every point. True godly obedience is not just doing the work just arbitrarily done, not something that's randomly done. Hey, there's a lady that needs to be walked across the street. I'm going to suddenly help her. Yes, you should but doing the work that God has appointed us to do as well. When Jesus did this, he shows that his Father was was more important to him. He did what the Father gave him to do. It showed that the Father mattered more to him than anything that would ever keep him from doing what the Father gave him to do. And when his work is completed, Jesus will return to the Father's side, sharing his glory forever. And this is a deep passage It goes far beyond our understanding. It really does. And it's rich. The glory that the Son had with the Father, okay, in the time before the universe was created, is something that is hard to comprehend, is it not? But the, pre-existing, the pre-existence of Jesus, the teaching that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons, and the equal glory of the Father and the Son are so plain here that to argue against it would be ridiculous, but I know we do. It's important to say that Jesus was not just a mere man like David or Paul or like Pastor Nate and didn't exist before he was born in Bethlehem. Teach your kids that one. Christmas is like, oh, it's Jesus' birthday, when Jesus was born. But wait, didn't Jesus create the world? So when was he born? I've had these theological conversations. The pre-existence of Christ. See, on a practical practical note, prayer for glory is best done by one who has done work on earth for God. A lazy wish to go to glory without working is not according to Jesus' example. So Jesus comes in these first sections and he prays that the people would know God. And then he reminds them in the next few verses, in verses 6 to 8, that Jesus makes God known. 
in verses 6 to 8, as he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of this world. See, Jesus has made God fully known by revealing clearly and in some detail who God is. It is this point that Jesus speaks directly to his disciples, but also indirectly to you and to me for those who are believers right here in this room. Jesus has made known God, his character, and his attributes. You can't know God outside of knowing Jesus. You believe in God, you say. Well, that's impossible without knowing Jesus. As he says, yours they were, and you gave them to me. Believers are given to Jesus by the Father according to an everlasting promise, a covenant made and sealed long before they were born and taken out from this world by the calling of the Holy Spirit. The Christian is the property of the Father as well as the property of the Son. And I think we struggle with this idea that you are not your own. Because we live in this world of an individualization where you are your own person. Be your own man, be your own woman, whatever it may be. And Jesus says, you're mine. I bought you. I bought you with my blood. You're not a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. That is who you are. The Christian was of the world, just like everyone else. Their calling and election out of this world to be Jesus' people. And this isn't because of anything that they've done. And when I meditate upon these words, I'm reminded that you and I, brothers and sisters, we have a job. We have a job to do while we're here on this earth. There are commands that have been given to us. There are evidences of saving faith that will need to be seen in our lives. There is a saving faith that is given, but God's election never allows for those responsibilities to go away. All true believers who really repent and believe and have the Holy Spirit have an amazing comfort that they were known and cared for and given to Christ by an eternal covenant long before you ever knew Jesus or even cared about him. Dwell upon that one for a second. And it's an amazing, mind-blowing comfort to think about how Jesus cares for those who the Father has given. And they have kept his word as people who have been given to, G- to, given to Jesus from the Father. They have kept the word. And this is proof that Jesus gives that these people have been given to him by the Father. Jesus describes his disciples in a way that others can see. They have kept, they have observed, they've obeyed the gospel others didn't but they did these people had hearing ears and attentive hearts and diligently obeyed jesus's message that was given him by the father so here's the point practical obedience is the first great test of genuine discipleship practical obedience is a great test of genuine discipleship I don't know how many times in an office I sat across from someone who's struggling with something and we open the Bible together and we say, well, let's say what God's word has to say. And we read it together. And the response to me is, yeah, but. Okay, but what? 
But what? Verse 7 says, Now they know that. They know all that Jesus has done and spoken of to them. He can say that they know the profound Trinitarian truth that he talks about in verse 7. Everything that you have given me is from you. The Father entrusted judgment and authority to the Son. We saw that in chapter 5. He grants the Son to have life in himself. We see that in chapter 5 again, verse 26. He gave the Son works to do, and the Son accomplishes them all, as we see in verse 4 of this chapter. The Father gave his own name to the Son, and the Son has repeatedly identified himself by that name. And the disciples now know that all that, that Jesus has done are the words and works that have been given to Jesus by the Father. They now know the eternal life comes from him and only from him. For I have given them the words that you have given me, Jesus says. And why do they know? Because the Father gave him words, gave Jesus words, truths in his teaching. Jesus taught them and they received them. So I can't let you leave without asking you this. Have you believed the words of Jesus? Do you believe what he says he is? Are you resting in him this morning? If you are, you have a reason to sing praises in all circumstances. If you aren't, I invite you to be reconciled to God, to Jesus Christ. It is here we see that the disciples did with the words that are given what are you doing with the words that you've received? It's because they received them and having come to know and have come to know the truth. What did they do with the words given? They took them. They received them. And the disciples had willingly received and embraced the truth that Jesus brought them from the Father. They had known and acknowledged that Jesus came from God the Father. They believed and were persuaded that the Father sent him to be the Messiah. All of these had taken place when most of the people around them didn't acknowledge or believe any of these things at all. So what do we do with all of this? In the midst of troubling times... Jesus' prayer is that his people would know God and that he makes his Father known. How often are you asked what you want? You know, if it's for your birthday or for Christmas, how many times have you responded with, I don't know? I do it all the time. Or, or we're answering, I don't know, because the present that we have in mind is way too expensive. We do not know what to wish for often, but Jesus knows what we need most. He is committed to giving us what is best for us, the revelation of God, the disclosure of God's name, and the clear picture of God's character and purpose and mission that we see when we look at Jesus as presented in the Gospels. To know God is best, most satisfying, everlasting, ongoing, never-failing, transforming, life-affirming, death-defeating, world-conquering, sin-forgiving, stain-cleansing, holy-teaching, and life-saving. When a crisis is happening, what is your first response? 
Be honest. The world seems to be falling apart, doesn't it? It's funny how us in the West feel like the world is falling apart, but there's been people in this world who've been experiencing these things for decades. And the world seems to be falling apart, but there is one thing that is unchanging. God is on his throne. How can I know that if I don't know him? If I don't know him? He is most satisfying. He is most everlasting. He is ongoing. He never failing. He transforms. He gives life. He defeated death. He conquers the world. He forgives us of our sin. He cleanses us of our stains. He gives us holiness and teaches us how to live. He saves our lives. Let us come to know our God more and more so that we can rest more and more in the midst of troubling times. Jesus prays that his people would know him, know the Father. How can we say, along with the psalmist, I don't know about you, I spent a lot of, week, a lot of time this week in Psalms of Lament, just crying. Yet again, God, here's another mess. But Psalm 46 says, Come and behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolation to the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. How could I say with Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? How can the nations rage and me respond with, But I will trust in the Lord, unless I know who He is? What we also see in this passage is that Jesus says in verse 6, That those whom the Father gave Him kept his word. So let me ask you these questions. Do you seek to know whether we belong to this world or to God the Father and Christ the Son? Do we keep the word of God? Let me be clear. Let me be super clear. Oh, at least I'm going to try and be super clear. This does not require absolute perfection. Because in that case, we'd all be in trouble. Repenting when we fail is an aspect of keeping God's word. Do we love God's word? Do we resonate with Peter's statements that Jesus has the words of life that he said in John 6 when Simon Peter answered him, Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have, you have the words of eternal life. Do we know the word as the light for our path hope for our despair and strength for our weakness, help in our need, correction for our wrongs, and joy greater than our sorrows. What a blessing to have God's Word that we may know Him and what He has done for us. Jesus makes God known to us as we weather the storms of this life. Let us continue to worship this God, our God, 
Father, we thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us through your Son. I thank you for this reminder, this little window of seeing how the tr- God the Son interacts with God the Father and how he prays in times of crisis. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of prayer, that we would be people of the Word, that we would come to know you more and more, and that would push us out to declare who you are, that you are the God of hope to the nations, that you are on your throne, always have been, always will be. May the sovereignty of God be the pillow on which we lay our head. 